The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, drag your drop and cut your paste. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 390 with guest Steve Souders, recorded live Tuesday, October 21st, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD in our TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who wants to tell everyone to rest assured, his head is definitely in the cloud, Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Richard is not with me right now. I'm in my hotel room at the PDC in Los Angeles. And uh, after day three, it has really been exciting. I think one of the most exciting things, besides Surface, which I'm just having a ball with, um, is Oslo. Oslo, to me, I'm still looking for, you know, the business case. They really didn't make it all that much. But, of course, DSLs and, you know, domain-specific languages are, um, are, are very, very interesting to me, of course. The demos that I saw were pretty amazing. One of the coolest things that I saw was being able to simply define in M schema uh, a, a simple data structure and then just write some text. I think it was an album, like a, like a artist album and, uh, rating or something like that, 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 uh, music albums. And you, the, the guy was just able to type in text that says, uh, you know, Abbey Road by the Beatles is excellent. And from those three things, he was able to translate that into data, the word excellent into a rating. Um, so, and that was interesting. And then just with, um, you know, a simple command line tool was able to save that data in a database and then, uh, write another, write a, a small DSL language just to, to process those things. So, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting. I, I know I sound a bit, tongue-tied right now because, you know, it's very new to me. And just the interviews that we did here, plus uh, one session that I saw at the PDC was really all that I got out of it. But I'm, I, it is intriguing to me. I'm not sure I'm sold yet, but um, uh, I'm sure as I get to use it, I have the bits. And as I get to use it a little bit more, I'm sure I'm going to come around because it really does look interesting. Now, that's all I have to report. Let's get to the interview now. Uh, there's going to be no Better Know Framework or email today. So short and sweet intro. Let's get on with the show. Our guest today is Steve Souders. Steve works at Google on web performance and open source initiatives. His book, High Performance Websites, explains his best practices for performance along with the research and real-world results behind them. 
Steve is the creator of Why Slow, that's Y-S-L-O-W, the performance analysis extension to Firebug. Steve is co-chair of Velocity, the web performance and operations conference from O'Reilly, and co-founder of the Firebug Working Group. He teaches CS193H high-performance websites at Stanford and frequently speaks at conferences including OSCON, the Ajax Experience, SXSW, Rich Web Experience, Future of Web Apps, and Web 2.0 Expo. Welcome, Steve. Hey, thanks. That's quite a resume in one paragraph. There's a lot going on. It's very exciting. Yeah. Of all of those things, what's your favorite thing to do? Oh, it's working on tools like uh, Yslow. I've done a couple other tools in the last few months, um, and I just love, you know, I stay up late and I just love to hack on stuff. And, and it's really good for me because, you know, I'm kind of an optimization geek. I drive my wife crazy. You know, I <laughs> want the silverware arranged in a certain way in the drawer. Yikes. And so I'm sure a lot of other people have a similar situation where, you get to work on something that you really love doing, you know, that your mind really thinks that way. And so, I, you know, I, I want to dig into performance. I want to figure out how to make web pages faster, and I'm missing a tool that does blah. And so I just go and build that. And it's really cool that I have a job where I can do that, where I can build tools that I find really helpful and useful, and, and I can, you know, release those, open source those, and let other people use them too. Well, you certainly work at a, a challenging company where, as far as performance is concerned, that must be a challenge every day. In what way? Well, I mean, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of computers. Obviously, they're running along and humming fine, but uh, those things tend to break, you know? Yeah, that's true. The, the bigger challenge is <clears throat> the size of the company. You know, trying to reach out and, and evangelize these best practices. And even, you know, it's it's not just the education part. It's also make, making people aware of tools, you know, not just the ones I build, but other ones that are out there. Yeah. Um, and just communicating that across a large company like Google is very challenging as well. The good thing here is, you know, some companies you have to kind of uh, sell the Kool-Aid a little bit and get people to you know, believe that performance and speed is really important. And luckily here at Google, you know, the Kool-Aid, everyone, everyone's drank that Kool-Aid. Yeah. So, you know, you have Marissa Meyer and Larry and Sergey, you know, all talking performance and latency and speed all the time. So, but it's still a challenge just the size of the company and, and you know, those communication challenges to get, get through. So tell us about YSlow. So YSlow is really cool. Um, you know, I built that. I've been here at Google for nine months now, um, but before that, I was at Yahoo for about eight years. And uh, you know, I started about four years ago working in this performance area. And what I did was I captured this list of best practices that I found um, product teams at Yahoo could benefit from over and over and over again. You'd go to a, a new development team and, and you'd look at this list and compare it to their current site and you'd find the five to eight things that they weren't doing on the list, get them to fix those, and everything would be 25 to 50% faster. It was very cool and pretty much was always successful. Uh, you always saw that, that level of improvement. So the, then the challenge was, you know, I had all this knowledge in my head. How do I get, you know, I can only talk to, you know, and work with, you know, three or four teams at a time. And we have hundreds of teams at the company to evangelize to. How do we get this to scale? So I started my career working in AI, uh, you know, codifying not, uh, expertise and, and knowledge-based systems and things like that. So, you know, that kind of came to, to mind of can I capture this expertise that I have in a tool that people can run in self-serve mode and so that was the first incarnation of Yslow. And I first built it actually as a uh, bookmarklet in IE. So it actually used to run in IE and then a Grease Monkey script. And, and then, you know, Firebug came out from Joe Hewitt and just took off at Yahoo. All the 
front-end web devs were using Firebug, and, and most of the best practices that I talk about are on the front-end side, and so that those front-end web devs were the exact audience I was trying to uh, target. And so it became clear that embedding YSLOW in Firebug would be a way to reach the target audience. And so I called up Joe one day and gave him a demo, and he said, yeah, let me tell you how to build YSLOW as a Firebug extension. And that came out about a year and a half ago, and I remember there was some work that had to be done to take that internal uh, version of the code uh, and make it more presentable and better organized before it went out the door to the public. And uh, so someone in my group was helping with that. And, you know, it's no fun to go through someone else's code and have to rework it. So my motivation for that uh, person, Swapnil, who, who did that work, was this will be, this is really going to, like, be really successful. I think we're going to get 1,000, you know, maybe 10,000 people to download and use this YSLOW thing. And I think right now we're over half a million downloads. Um, so it's been very successful. And basically what it does um, is it looks at these 14 rules and applies them to any website. So it tells you it generates a grade from 0 to 100, and it tells you, um, you know, what areas of these best uh, best practices for, for fast web pages, what areas you need to improve, and actually gives you specifics like you need to add a far future expires header to this JavaScript file, or you need to sprite these seven CSS background images together. Huh. It's, it's very specific, and I, I hope we can have a chance to actually run through a few of these, because I think lots of folks don't realize the impact of these different characteristics, or even some of the technologies, like uh, content delivery networks. I, I think most folks I talk to, just, you, you know, one of your main recommendations that comes up in YSLO and over, over and over again for folks is use a content delivery network. They just don't know what they are. Yeah, so you want me to talk about that one a little bit? Absolutely, yeah, please. Yeah, so... This is a, has actually been one of the more controversial rules that came out from my book and why slow. Uh, one of the so you know a, a content delivery network is basically like you know the leading service provider is Akamai. There's also Limelight, Savas, uh, Mirror Image, a couple others. And a year ago, the main feedback, the main kind of complaint or criticism about this rule was. For a lot of you know individuals or mom and pop size uh, companies, you know signing up and establishing an account with Akamai was cost prohibitive. Right. I don't know the exact numbers, but you know there's a minimum spend with Akamai that is more than a lot of small website owners want to pay. But since that time in the last year, um, I, someone has told me about this new. Uh, player on the uh, uh, market um, called Panther Express, and they're uh, much more uh, low cost, uh, and their their entry to establish an account is much much lower. So really, anyone uh, can do that. In fact, you know, in the Stanford class I'm teaching, um, some of the students there have set up accounts for the class project that we're doing. So, you know, if college students can afford it, it gives you an idea of how low the, the cost is. And, and so what the CDN does is uh, these companies have data centers around the world. They might have dozens or maybe even thousands, and they host your static content there. Static content is content that, you know, doesn't change from request to request. So it's like your images, your scripts, your flash files, your style sheets, and they'll store them on their computers that are in each region around the world so that if you have users who, you know, if maybe your data centers for your dynamic web application code are in California or California and Chicago, and, and the idea of spinning up servers that you own in Taiwan and India and, and France uh, it kind of goes beyond what your company is currently able to do. You can keep your web application logic on your servers that you own in California and Chicago, but push all the static content to the through a CDN provider to 
servers that are closer to your actual uh, users. And, you know, so if you look at the typical page these days across the, you know, top 100 websites in the world, there's over 50 HTTP requests in a single page uh, on average. And so, you know, for your web application logic, that's only one HTTP request, the HTML document. That, so that, for that one, the user has to travel from Korea all the way to either California or Chicago. Yeah. Uh, but once they get that, the, for that page, they have to download another 49 uh, HTTP resources, you know, images or whatever. And those, if you're using a uh, CDN, those they can get from a server that is much closer geographically and Internet uh, speed closer to them so that they'll get a faster experience. Just this one change alone can cut 25 to 50% off the load time of a page. You know, Steve, we don't tend, we tend to think here in the States that, you know, wherever it is on the Internet, it's fine. You're going to get the same kind of performance because it's either there or it's not. But when you get outside the United States and you have um, networks that are, you know, the chain being only as fast as its weakest link, you have weak links. And you have routes that are static routes and you, you know, some of these – it's more of an issue outside of the United States, I think, don't you think? Yeah, it really is. You know, we're we're we have good networks here, good con- connectivity in the US and you know also good uh peering points where, you know, you can traverse networks. And outside the US that's not always the case and certainly in in some areas it's it's incredibly bad and and you know, if you're a smaller company and you know you're running a uh, website selling antiques in the Pennsylvania Dutch area, and all your users are right around there, okay, well you don't need a CDN. But if you really are a company that has users coming in from around the world, what you've probably realized is over the next year or two, most of your growth in your user population is going to be outside the U.S. And so for those companies that do have a worldwide audience or are trying to grow uh, to have a worldwide audience, giving people outside the U.S. a fast uh, experience when they navigate to your site is really, really critical. And using a CDN is a much more cost-effective way to do that than trying to buy servers and deploy them yourself all around the world. We uh, have investigated this, of course, because... We have the situation where, you know, our shows are 40, 50 megabyte MP3s, uh, sometimes bigger than that, and we have lots of them coming from one central server in Redmond. And, uh, you know, so obviously this is something I've been thinking about for quite a while. And I looked at Amazon S3, which would be okay, except that there isn't individual, there isn't reporting on individual files. I can't drill into a report and say, how many times was this particular file downloaded this month? And for advertisers, that's absolutely necessary. Uh, it's just been interesting. I mean, this is the kind of thing that that uh, that we've exactly been looking to set up. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, uh, I think Savis is most known for uh, being a, a CDN for video content, but this is something you know you, you you do if you move to a CDN to some other service provider. There's going to be control issues that, that, you know, areas of control that you're going to have to deal with, either either give up on those or negotiate them specifically with the service provider, whether it's web hosting or CDN or whatever. And so certainly, you know, from the CDN service provider's perspective, it's, you know, easier if they kind of set everything up um, the same for everybody, and they don't have to do a lot of this tracking and reporting at, at the um, fine grain level of detail. Um, but that's you know also you know that's something that you can talk to the service provider. And I know Akamai and other service providers have been um, you know willing to talk about and set up special configurations for customers. So, you know, it's possible you could get that. Maybe not so much with Amazon S3 because, you know, that really is more of a, a self-serve service. But maybe if you went with one of the other CDN service providers, they could get that for you. So your tool is able to make that recommendation that that the, that you should use a CDN. And uh, obviously a lot of these um, suggestions that why slow is is 
all of the suggestions YSLO gives you are really focused around client side stuff, not necessarily server side. You can't get in the can't get in the back room, in other words. But, yeah. Well, and the main reason for that is not so much you know what's possible to do. You know, it, it kind of came the other way. I started by finding what's the most important place to focus, and it turns out the most important place to focus is on the front end. Yeah. This is maybe the the most important thing that I've contributed, you know, from my work that's come out of my work, is kind of flipping the the world of of performance optimization upside down, putting it on its head. You know, because I kind of started there too. My my background in working on the web has been working on on big backend architectures. So you know, I was the head uh, uh, of the engineering team for my Yahoo for three years uh, at Yahoo. I worked on Yahoo's user database, their worldwide user database, and other you know large scale worldwide architectures, and when someone, you know, back in those days, when someone would say, my Yahoo's too slow, we would look on the back-end servers, and we would try to see how we could cut, you know, 10 or maybe, if we were lucky, 20% off the response time of our back-end web servers. And, you know, that was maybe 10 or 20 milliseconds, right? You know, it would yeah. only take the web server 200 milliseconds around to, to get a, a web page off. And so maybe we could reduce that to, you know, 180 or 160 milliseconds and cut 20 or 40 milliseconds off the end user experience. And it wasn't until I really shifted into a role of focusing on uh, finding performance best practices that the whole company could follow that I took a step back and I said, I kind of split performance into two areas, efficiency and response time. So efficiency, companies like Yahoo and Google are really good at efficiency. How can we handle large scale so we can do a, uh, you know, a large number of page views per second on our servers with a minimal amount of hardware? Um, so that efficiency part is really good, and that really focuses on the back end. But it turns out you know, what I wanted to focus on was the end user experience. How do we make pages faster for our users? And if you look at that, again, like, you know, the average page is 50 HTTP requests. Only one of those probably is doing a hit on a back-end application server that is having to run some logic. Those other 49 hits are reading static files off of servers. And so if you – and that typically on any web page in the world that you look at, that – back-end part, getting the HTML document, is usually less than 10% of the overall experience. So if you really want to make web pages faster for users, you've got to look at that other 90%. What are, how are we serving all of these other resources? And that's where you can get into things like, well, you know, serve those 49 HTTP requests off a of CDN, and they'll be geographically closer to your users, and they'll get a faster experience. Or... Um, Use a far future expires header, and what that means is when when users come back to your web page a second time, if they haven't cleared their cache, they'll have most of those images and scripts and style sheets already in their browser disk, and they won't even have to do any HTTP traffic. So again, that will you know cut things uh, significantly if you can reduce the number of HTTP requests. So so the first thing that I did was I I identified that the place to get the biggest wins was on this front-end part, and that's why the best practices they came out are all on the client side, or predominantly on the client side, because that's the place where you can get the biggest bang for the buck. It's also the place where a lot of mistakes are made, just because uh, I, some of the classic mistakes I see, and of course, you know, maybe not the people that we roll around with, but you go to a average, uh, not an average, but just an arbitrary website, and you'll see a, a, a thumbnail, and it's loading in really, really slow, right? And, and then when you you look at the actual file that they've crammed into a 100 by 100 uh, icon, and it's like, you know, three megabytes. Yeah. <laughs> Classic yeah. stuff, you know? If they could just resample that, right. you know, it, it would load an order of magnitude faster. Right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this special message. What's more important for your web applications? 
high performance on the server or on the client? How about footprint, number of server requests? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your application performance, and of course, there is no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building their UI components, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution for different products, different scenarios, and even different browsers. The techniques vary dramatically. As a result, you, the developer, receive out-of-the-box, highly reliable components that are optimized in every aspect of their behavior. I'm sure you'll be interested to learn more about the various performance-boosting techniques for web applications. Just go to telerik.com slash top performance for details and live demos. Many of the things that are, are in YSLO, let's say some of the things that are in YSLO are somewhat obvious in the sense of they're things we forget. And the great thing about the tool is that it just sort of pulls us out of, put your style sheets at the top, put your scripts at the bottom, watch out for CSS expressions. Like those are pretty obvious. Uh, they're just, they're easy to miss. And it's great to be able to test the page and go, Hey, you forgot to do this. Yeah. That's really important. And, you know, in, in YSLO, you have this ability to print out you know, it's not really a pretty report, but you can basically print out, you know, get a copy of all of the recommendations and print that out and take it to a meeting or give it to, you know, someone in the company. And it makes it really easy for everyone in the company to know the current state of their products, their web products, with regard to these performance best practices and have a really clear, common understanding of what it is that they need to work on next. Yeah, and you know, one of the one uh, options or one of the suggestions that uh, I see often, especially against ASP.NET sites, is uh, configuring e tags. And I find most folks just don't know about e tags in the first place. Can you can you dig in a little more on that? Yeah, that's one of the more confusing ones, but luckily the fix is is pretty simple. Um, so e tags are entity tags, and okay, so this is going to be kind of a long answer. <laughs> It, no it problem. always is. No problem. Okay. So uh, removing e-tags will make it so that your resources can be read from cache more free- frequently than uh, they would otherwise. So you have something in the cache, right? Maybe you've set a far future expires header on it. Maybe not. But at this point, the user hits your page, and that item in the cache, let's say it's a you know, 50K image, that item in the cache is expired, right? You know, it was good up until yesterday, but today is past the expiration date. So I kind of make the analogy to milk, right? You take that milk out of the fridge, you've got your cup of coffee there, you really want to pour some milk in it, but the date on the carton is expired. So what do you do? You have to see whether the milk has gone bad or not. You have to see if it's valid. So you open the top, you take a sniff, and you see how bad it is, and you decide whether to use the milk or not. So the browser does the same thing. It's got this 50K image. It has it on the disk. It looks at the expiration date on the carton, and it's yesterday. So it says, okay, well, I have this thing on my disk. It would be a lot easier to use this than run to the store and pick up another gallon of milk. Let me just check it so the browser can't can't see if the, the resource smells bad or not. So it has to ask the web server to do that. So it says, hey, web server, I'm requesting this 50K GIF, but just to let you know, I have one right here on my local disk, and in HP 1.0 what we used was the last modified date. So the, the browser says, I've got this one on my disk, and the, the date that it was last modified when you gave it to me was February 1st, 2008. Uh, and the web server says, oh, yeah, well, I've got that 50K GIF here, and, yeah, it hasn't been modified since then. So instead of returning 50K back to the uh, browser, which, of course, is going to take multiple trips, and if you're in a distant country, that's going to be even uh, worse, but instead of returning 50K, the web server says just returns a 304 status code, which means not modified. And that tells the browser that it can go ahead and use the milk. It says hey, yeah, the one you have on your disk matches the one that I have on my server, so just read it off disk and we can save both of us a lot of time. And so that's also a faster user experience. 
So in HP 1.0, all you could use to test the validity of resources was the last modified date. And what was decided with HP 1.1 was we needed validation schemes that went beyond that, that provided more flexibility than just a last modified date. So e-tags were introduced, entity tags. And basically, it can be any string. It's just an opaque string. It's up to the server to decide what it wants to put in there. So, you know, what you could put in there, you could put in something like a checksum of the file or, you know, maybe a version number or the language it was generated for. But in reality, I've never seen any website that uses this advanced uh, validation scheme of entity tags. But they're included by default. And in the default implementation of IIS and Apache, they put, both of those servers, put something in the e-tag that will make it uh, very likely that if the user ever has to check the validity of that resource, the browser is going to be incorrectly told that the resource is no longer valid. Huh. And so in Apache's case, what they put in the e-tag is the... Um, I know number of the file on that web server. So if you have more than one web server hosting your site, which most large websites do, that I know number is never going to match across two servers. So if yesterday the user went to server one and today they try to valid validate that resource and they go to server two, the e-tag's not going to match. E-tag overrides last modified date. So instead of just returning a 200-byte uh, 304 response, the server has to return a 50K response of the entire image. That's kind of silly, case, don't you think? Yeah. In the case of IIS, the, I forget what it's called, the database number or something like that is included in the e-tag. So that, again, if you have more than one IIS server hosting your site, if the user goes uh, back to validate their response, they're likely going to go to a different uh, IAS server, which is going to have a different e-tag, and so the validation is going to fail, and you're going to unnecessarily send 50K back. So the other thing that's kind of interesting about these best practices is we see here that it's a huge improvement to the user experience to um, fix e-tags. So the, the easiest fix is if you're not using this you know, more powerful, flexible form of validation, just remove the e-tag. Or in the case of IES, there's a patch that I mentioned on, in my book about how you can make all the e-tags consistent across all your servers so you don't run into this problem. So not only does it help the user experience by making it a lot faster, but think about how it's going to reduce the amount of bandwidth that you're using in your data center. So now all of a sudden you can send a bunch of 304 responses instead of having to send back the full content of the resources users are, are trying to validate. So people have actually seen significant drop-off in their bandwidth usage out of their data centers by making this change. And in IIS 7, at least, there's a script you can run to, to keep the e-tags properly synced across multiple web servers. They've at least thought of it there. But it's funny how long this has been messed up. And just disabling it is almost always the right answer, just going back to last modified. Yeah. I mean, it, it's great that, that there's that script to run to make them all consistent. But, you know, I think, I think what they're using in there is the, still the, the database number and the file timestamp and maybe file size. And I guess I kind of feel like um, if the uh, timestamp is the same, then uh, the file size is going to be the same. So including file size and timestamp really doesn't help me. If the timestamp changes, probably the file size has changed as well. Yeah. Is there any way to use a GUID or a GUID? Well, you could you could put that in the e-tag, but just use the last modified date, right? Yeah, I don't know why this needed to be fixed. Last modified makes sense. That last modified date doesn't get changed over time zones and all sorts of other things, does it? No, it's all GMT. I mean, yeah. you do have to be a little careful. Like, if you're pushing uh, files to multiple servers, you have to make sure to use the minus P option to SCP or whatever you're pushing with so that it preserves the timestamp. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you do that, then the timestamp is going to be the same across all the servers and you can use last modified date. So, you know, in Apache, the fix is just say file e-tag none. 
and it removes e-tag, and guess what? That also reduces the uh, number of bytes that you're sending in the response and the request. Hmm. So if you're not using advanced e-tag features, what would be great would be to just remove them. And so you get better cacheability, and you reduce you know, a few extra bytes in the header of your HTTP responses and requests. It sounds like somebody wasn't thinking when they architected that solution. I mean, there must have been a reason why they felt compelled to do it. Yeah, I think the, the, to me, you know, I would kind of fall to Apache and IIS here, and I would say, uh, you know, you, you had HP 1.0 sending the last modified date. I think both of those servers would have been better off disabling e-tags by default and letting users opt in to adding it if they wanted to use that advanced technique. Because what I see is, again, I'm sure there are sites out there that are using it. I've looked at thousands of websites. I've talked to people, and I've never seen one. I've talked to a couple of developers. I've talked to two developers in the last two years who said they use e-tags for some special purpose. So, you know, two out of, you know, thousands of people that I've talked to, um, you know, it'd be better to turn that off and let people enable it, opt in if they want to use it. It's yeah. This sounds like the main problem is the default configuration is wrong. It's just a mistake. Yeah. Compression. It's a feature that you can turn on and off. You actually uh, have a suggestion here to com- to to compress components, but can't you turn compression on and off for an entire page? Well, uh, what do you mean for an entire page? Like the entire page and everything in it? Yeah, I thought there was. I, mean, I haven't done this, but I thought there was a way in HTTP to to specify that the the contents of the of the page be compressed. Well, I don't know how it is in IAS in Apache. You know, I think by default, uh, out of the box, Apache compresses text HTML mon types. Um, I'm not sure of that, but I'm pretty sure. And so anyway, what you'll see is most websites you go to are going to be compressing the HTML, but Apache definitely does, by default does not compress other text uh, mind types, uh, JavaScript, CSS, JSON, XML. Um, so you have to turn those on explicitly. You have to opt into that. And here's another one where you know, it would be kind of cool if Apache and other web servers would uh, enable compression across all text resources uh, by default and let you turn that off. Because it really is, you know, a no-brainer. It's something that you should do, um, that all websites should do. Uh, so, so I don't know uh, about other web servers, but in Apache, you have to explicitly enumerate the uh, data types, the content types that you wanted to compress. In uh, in IIS six, compression is turned off by default, and in IIS seven, it is on. But there was a problem, and I'm trying to remember what it was. I think it was IE5 messed up GZIP in some way. Yeah, IE55, IE60, Service Pack 1 for certain edge cases, Netscape 3 and 4 had problems. I think, you know, a year or two ago, that was something that gave some companies pause. Um, I know, like, Netflix a year ago didn't do GZipping, and now they do. I think we're seeing that you know, those edge case browsers are dropping off enough that it's becoming less and less of an issue. Um, So people are are getting more on board with with adopting GZIP compression across all of their text resources. So when you say it's on by default uh, in IIS, is that for just HTML documents or for other text content types? It does specify, you do specify types for what to compress, but it does have a larger range of them specified, including JS and CSS and things like that. I'm looking at an HTTP response that uh, is on Rick Strahl's blog, where uh, there's just the second line down after content type text HTML is content encoding gzip, which would indicate that, um, that, that gzip compresses the entire content. Well, it's, payload. It's, that's going to be in the page. It's not necessarily going to be on the resource files. Yeah, so, like, does he have a script or style sheet? Can you look at the headers for a script or style sheet? Yeah, I'm looking. I don't see anything right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, and what's cool is, um, you know, I'm teaching this class at Stanford now, and so, you know, I have to gen up whole new slides for the class because each lecture is one one rule, so I need to expand the, the slide content a bit. 
And in doing that, I've gone back and taken these tables that I put into my book a year and a half ago, and I'm updating them. So, you know, the table for GZIP compression that's in my book, looking at the Alexa Top 10, shows that 9 out of 10 compress their HTML document, but only about 6 out of 10 compress their style sheets and scripts. And so I just updated that, and now it's um, 10 out of 10 of the current Alexa Top 10, 10 out of 10 compress their HTML document, and about 8 out of 10 compress their scripts and style sheets. So we are seeing, I am seeing trends in websites where these best practices are being adopted more and more. So we are making progress there. Yeah. Oh, I, I just double-checked my notes here. IIS-7, by default, static compression is on. Right. So all your static resources are compressed. Dynamic compression is off by default. Yeah, I just I just saw that too, Rich. Yeah, so that's good. I mean, we, we're obviously making some progress. Because I, I think the default settings are really important because many people never adjust them. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I really wish I had one or two people who could work full-time on um, going and talking to vendors and trying to get default configurations uh, updated where it's Pareto optimal, right? You, you know, you don't want to get the tail wagging the dog and, and turn on some performance optimi- optimizations by default, and it causes, you know, a heavier load on the servers or uh, edge case bugs, you know, that are significant, um, but where it's kind of a no-brainer, um, it would be good to update those. You know, another good example is Squid. You know, Squid still doesn't, Squid, you know, by default downgrades all traffic between the browser and the Squid proxy to HP 1.0, which generally has a negative effect on the user experience. We better define Squid here, uh, Steve. Oh, Squid is a uh, proxy, people use it for, uh, you know, corporate proxies or reverse proxy um, so, you know, that's what we, I think that's what we run here at Google. So if you're inside the corporate firewall, you're going through, uh, the corporate proxy. Squid's the most popular proxy in the world, I'm pretty sure. And, and so, like, one thing that the proxy provides is caching. So if, you know, my office mate and I, you know, if, if I've just gone to, um, your guys' website and, and I send the URL over to my office mate, and he goes there too, uh, he's going to go through the proxy, and the proxy is going to see all these static resources um, from your web page and won't have to ask. He won't have to get them from your website, which is farther away. He can just get it from the local squid proxy cache. So it gives some performance benefits, but if they just supported HP 1.1, uh, the people behind the squid proxy would get faster pages. Yeah, funny little translation issues there just between uh, on the proxy where it's just causing problems that didn't need to. Yeah, you know, and and so, you know, we're, you know, cer- and then certainly browser vendors, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of, you know, pleased that that I've been able to, you know, talk to people who work on IE and Firefox and I'm getting to know a couple people uh on Opera and Safari. Certainly I know people on the Chrome team. And, you know, I can plant little seeds about things that these browsers can do to make performance faster. And I'm seeing, you know, more more and more of those actually take root and get get done. So uh, web servers, web browsers, proxies, you know, the, the more that we can get vendors informed about these performance best practices, that's going to go a long way, too. Absolutely. You know, we were talking about this before the show started, but I, I loved on your blog the whole just say no to IE6 thing. What? Well, Steve, you got to tell them. I I know the story. You got to tell them. Oh, you want me to tell them? I mean, Absolutely I agree with you, but what what was the blog post about? Well, you know, I had just come back from the Ajax Experience, great conference out in Boston about two weeks ago, and you know, all these web devs, you know, real leaders in the industry are getting up talking about you know how they've contorted their work to support IE6, and, you know, all the web devs there are bemoaning, you know, how much extra work and hassle and, and you know, painful exception code they're having to do to handle IE6. 
And, you know, no one talked about how we're going to get out of that. IE7's been out for two years. We just celebrated the two-year anniversary. And, you know, I don't know what the worldwide stats are, but my guess is uh, IE6 and IE7 are both running pretty close, maybe 25% each, 25-30. So, you know, it's been two years since IE7 came out, and IE6 is still the number one or number two most popular browser out there. I mean, that's just amazing. And... You know, there's lots of reasons why that might be happening, but but the the end result is it causes a lot of extra work on web developers, and that also uh, worsens the user experience for uh, end users. Certainly, there are you know uh, there's better security with IE7 or other other newer browsers. There's much better security. Yeah, and but they're also faster, right? You know, yeah. we're getting all this work in in JavaScript uh, engines and newer browsers. So we have people using IE6; they they're uh, more vulnerable. They're getting a slower experience, and um, so you know, the point of my blog post was there's there's a couple uh, uh, organizations out there. I pointed to SaveTheDevelopers.org, and yeah. in the comments to that blog post, a couple others were called out. You know, which are efforts to try to get people and companies to encourage users who are on IE6 to upgrade to uh, a newer browser, whether that be, you know, IE7 or uh, another alternative, Firefox or Chrome or whatever. And, and so, you know, my, my, what I did on my page, what, so this save the, de- the save the developers.org have a little JavaScript snippet you can embed in your page. And if a user comes in on IE6, they get this little drop-down div at the top that says, hey, you know, if you upgrade to a newer browser, you'll have a better experience. Click here. And so I think if companies like Yahoo, Facebook, Google would do something like that, maybe you don't want to run it all the time. Maybe, maybe we all agree to run it on the sixth day of the month in honor of IE6. You know, if if all if if a bunch of major websites ran a campaign like that, I think we could get some get to see some movement off IE6, and we'd give users a better, safer experience, and we'd also be able to reduce the amount of development hours that we're having to spend to support such an old, uh, dysfunctional browser. Yeah, just say no. Yeah, friends don't let friends run IE6. <laughs> Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Uh, Hammerhead. You're still working on more tools. You're not done yet. Oh, it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, I, I think either at the beginning of this call or before the call, we were talking about, you know, the, you know, me kind of flipping the, the performance perspective upside down and getting people to look at the front end. You know, I think there's a lot of, of books and kind of the existing, you know, lore about performance optimization still is focused on the back end. And, you know, I think if you go to most big companies and you look at the real tech gurus at those companies, who you know, who's really looked to for technical expertise, they've probably cut their teeth on the back end. They've probably built some really huge, awesome, awesomely scalable back-end architectures. And so, you know, I think we still, you know, when we think of performance, we think of back-end optimization. And, you know, that's true if we're thinking of, of scalability and efficiency issues. But, you know, I really hope I'm shining a light that if the performance you're talking about is speed from the user's perspective, you need to look on the front end. Well, that's kind of a new perspective and so it's no surprise that we don't have a lot of t- tools existing or books or classes uh, or f- folklore that talk about that uh, area of front-end performance optimization. And um, so, yeah, there's, we're just at the tip of the iceberg. There's, you know, a ton of tools that are needed. You know, I'll, I'll just give you an example. 
like you know all of these browsers it's so cool to see how competitive the the space is right now yeah. all of these browsers are talking about optimizations they're making to make javascript faster and layout faster and and at, you know css applying css styles faster and you know get element by tag name and things like that and no one bothers to mention that there's no tool that gives developers visibility into that right there's right. no tool I can run that will show me how much faster CSS is if I do it this way or that way, or how much faster my JavaScript is loading and parsing if I do it this way or that way. I can profile my JavaScript code, but I have no visibility into how fast it's actually loading and being parsed by the browser. So just look at that. The main area for these, so like at this conference, the Ajax experience, the main thing that these these uh, you know, Ajax gurus are talking about, about how they're making it faster, there's no tool that gives you visibility into that. So you know, that just shows you that we're at the tip of the iceberg. There's a, you know, a whole, whole boatload of tools that we need so that web developers can have greater insight into making web pages faster. This whole tool, uh, Hammerhead, is just being able to run those iterations. Yeah, so Hammerhead, the idea of Hammerhead is, um, you know, it's not nearly as big as something like YSlow, um, but it's a, you know, handy little firebug extension that I saw needed here at Google. You know, the tagline for it is uh, moving performance testing upstream. So, you know, you can do some performance changes and push it out to your live audience and using Keynote or maybe you have some embedded JavaScript time measurement uh, beaconing system, you can push it out to the world and you can see whether it got faster or slower. But that's, you know, kind of painful to go through all the way, all the way through the development process before you can see whether things are going to be faster or slower. So what we want to do is we want to be able to give developers, um, you know, better insight as to whether the changes they're making are going to make their pages faster and how much faster so that we can you know, pr focus and prioritize our re development resources in the places where it's going to have the biggest impact. And so the problem with doing that is, you know, I can't run Keynote on my dev box. Uh, right. Keynote is a web metrics service provider out there. So, you know, the idea of Hammerhead is a web developer can tweak, uh, you know, do whatever performance tweak they're working on, and they can just on their dev box start up Hammerhead and say load my page a thousand times while I go to lunch. Maybe not a thousand, maybe a hundred. Depends how long you go for lunch. Uh, <laughs> you know, run it a hundred times, and and Hammerhead does some things that are are pretty simple but pretty powerful. It will load whatever URL you give it. It'll load it however many times you specify. But first it loads it that number of times, and it clears the cache between every load. So you get a load time for empty cache users, and then it will load it that number of times, 100 times or whatever, and it will leave the cache primed. So you get a primed cache uh, user experience, and it separates those. It saves all the data. It shows you the median and average, and it lets you export the data if you want to do more stuff like 90th percentile or standard deviation or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward, but it's pretty cool. You know, a developer now can make a tweak, turn it on, go to bed or go eat lunch, come back, and have an idea of, of how much faster their uh, changes are going to make the page. And it gives them an idea of whether it's worth pushing this all the way through the rest of the development cycle to get it out to live users. It's pretty clever. I mean, you're essentially measuring the time it takes between that initial socket connection happens and the 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 last resource is loaded up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very cool. Nifty. All right. So what's next? I mean, you you're still going. You got another tool in the works? Uh well, the you know I'm I co-founded the Firebug Working Group, and and so Firebug is huge. I mean, Firebug is bigger than Hammerhead. Why slow? You know, I, why slow was. You know, is pretty awesome. You know, half a million downloads. I think 
Firebug has like 6 million downloads or something like that. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And, you know, so so John J. Barton was someone who kind of took the torch from Joe Hewitt and kept Firebug development going, but he was only one guy. So the Firebug working group has, has uh, taken on the task to try to organize more resources to get focused on Firebug. And then just a month or two ago, Mozilla announced that they were going to uh, put three people working on Firebug as well, which really makes sense, right? It, it, it really behooves them for the success of Firefox to continue to have Firebug evolve and get more powerful. Sure. So, so I think um, last week a, uh, a Firebug 1.3 beta got built, and that should be up on the getfirebug.com website uh, today, either on the front page or you can go down and navigate through releases and see the beta releases there. And if you look at that, it has, um, in Firebug, it has kind of like a packet sniffer. It's called NetPanel, and it will show you all the resources that were downloaded, how they were downloaded, what kind of blocking occurred, and you can look at the HTTP headers, and there were some known bugs in earlier versions of NetPanel. And in this uh, 1.3 beta, the NetPanel has really had uh, a, not just a facelift. It looks a lot, a lot better, but it's also had the back end redone so that it's much more accurate. And I was just to, today, Tuesday, uh, is our weekly Firebug uh, working group con call. So I was just working with um, some of the developers on that today. Um, to try to, you know, validate the metrics that NetPanel is showing. So I think we want to continue to grow Firebug. Um, you know, the next big tool to me is the one I just mentioned about give me some visibility. So with a packet sniffer, I have great visibility into the network behavior of my page. Right. How many HTTP requests did I make? How long did they take? Uh, what request was blocking other requests? but I have no visibility into how long it took to parse the HTML document, how long it took to parse the CSS, how long it took to apply the CSS to uh, draw or redraw elements on the page. I have no visibility into um, JavaScript parse times. I can get an overall time for JavaScript execution if I have a profiler, but I don't know where in the page that JavaScript execution occurred. Maybe I can really get some performance improvement if I can move a large spike of JavaScript execution from early in the page to later in the page, but if I don't know where, where the execution is happening, how do I know what to work on? Right. So I think that's the next step, and we're talking about tools like that as part of Firebug, where you could kind of overlay those kinds of plots on top of the net panel packet sniffer um, display. So you could imagine having like a line plot or, or a uh, step uh, function drawn to show HTML parsing, CSS parsing, uh, redraws, JavaScript parsing, and JavaScript execution. I'd love to see, I'd like the, the breakdown on that. You know, the way, same way that inside of Firebug, I'm able to hover over elements on a page and it shows me where it was in the code. If it could also tooltip that out and say, this took this long to render and, and so forth. I mean, you really can start getting, where am I spending my time? Yeah, yeah. Um, John Resig uh, from Mozilla just did a blog post a couple of weeks ago how Firefox 3.1 has added this uh, Moz Paint uh, I think it's Moz after Paint event. So you can also attach to that, and you can see, well, when is the page being painted um, relative to other behavior? But, yeah, the one you mentioned would also be great. I'd also like to see, you know, where in the page, what, what were some of the parts of the page that were painted last or updated last? Yes. Uh, because certainly, you know, things, at least for, you know, people who read left to right, things in the top left, I want to do extra effort to get those to render earlier than later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, then the whole effect of I want this this bar to be there while the other rendering is going on, you, right now you've got to hack your way through that. Or actually having a tool that would clearly show this showed first, then this, then this, like that sort of order of execution and time to execution would be really valuable. Yeah, yeah. 
The other one, you know, another thing I find really interesting is I did a release a month or so ago of a tool called UA Profiler. UA stands for user agent. So, you know, this came about, Chrome was about to launch, and and someone asked me if I was going to kind of write up a performance profile of Chrome, like what did it do well and what could it do better, um, especially compared to other browsers. And, you know, as I mentioned before, we're, we're seeing great competition between browser developers now. We're seeing IE8 and Firefox 3, uh, you know, new builds of WebKit coming out with great performance improvements. And so people were kind of curious if I was going to blog about uh, how Chrome fit in there, and I thought about sitting down and doing, you know, a manual review of, of Chrome, but then I kind of fell back on my why slow way of thinking, you know, rather than me sitting down and doing this manually, what if I could just build a harness that you could run on any user agent and it would spit back a, a performance profile of how good or bad that browser was. And so that's this tool I call UA Profiler. And so you can go to it. You, anyone can navigate to it. You can just look at the results if you want. But if you want to contribute, you can point your web client to it and uh, have it run a series of tests, uh, automated tests on your browser. So basically just loads a page, and it can tell whether or not you support far future, your browser supports far future expires headers, or whether or not it supports gzip compression, or whether or not it loads scripts in parallel with other resources or in a blocking manner, which of course is worse. And yeah. so you just, you know, run your, your web client through these series of pages and that contributes another data point to the database. So it's been about a month, and there's been about 3,000 people have navigated to it and contributed their data, and that's been across over 100 different browsers. And so now web developers can go and, and web users can go and see from a performance perspective what's the best browser out there or you know, which browsers are really leading the way and which ones are kind of falling behind. And so I like that model of getting the web community to help help contribute to a source of data that is then shared publicly with everyone. Um, and I think that's a great way, especially because a lot of times the data we want to gather is the, the ground truth data comes from real users. So here's a way we can get real users contributing the most uh, valid data in a uh, open web sort of way. So when I imagine you don't test IE6, otherwise it would skew the curve. <laughs> yeah, IE6 is in there. You know, I don't decide what to test. It's the web community that decides. So certainly oh, sure. a lot of IE6 users have navigated there, and IE6 is near the bottom. I think the worst performing ones were the earliest versions of Opera. Yeah. IE4, Opera uh, one point, or 7.1. Bloated. Like, Oh, there's some ugly ones out yep. there. <laughs> well, Steve, we're just about at the end of the show. Is there any last-minute shout-outs or, or things you want to point us to or hi, Mom, or anything else? I, what, do you, what do you mean the end? I've got like another two hours of notes here to go over. <laughs> we may have to bring you back. Yeah, uh, This is web performance. What, what else could be more important than this? Nice. Yeah. Are, are you guys sold? Oh, it's, well, I was already sold coming in. That's why I hunted you down. Very <laughs> awesome. Very awesome. So I guess the, um, you know, the one shout out I would make is Google. It's very awesome that, you know, Google lets me do all of these things. And, and it's really refreshing to have the Google execs really want to contribute uh, to efforts that make the a web, a faster place for everyone, whether they're navigating on the Google network or off. So that's incredibly cool. Um, and I think maybe the only other thing I would mention is my website, stevesouders.com. Uh, and if you go there, I've got links to all of these things. Um, you know, I'm teaching this Stanford class now. All of the slides for the classes are posted there, so you could follow along if you want. Uh, new tools coming out. Um, and we've started up, uh, you know, I'm co-chair of this Velocity Conference. We had the first one last year, and it was a huge, phenomenal success. 
and we've booked uh, dates for that next year, June 22 to 24, and it's October, but we've already started uh, planning for that, so the call for proposals will be open um, in the next uh, two weeks, I think. So put that on your calendar. If you have some ideas for talks, submit a proposal. Awesome. Looks great. Thanks, Stephen. All right, Carl, Richard, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. It was great fun, and thanks for your great work. Oh, thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.